my daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But you still live. You know, the, the spirit is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast. I'm Maddie Perdue, your host, and also a Foxfire Fellow here this summer. Today marks the first episode of the Foxfire Fellows Takeover. Now, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be taking over the podcast to discuss the Fellows' SEED projects, SEED standing for Students Experiencing Education Differently. Over the course of the Foxfire Summer Leadership Program, we will be following my peers' journeys as they create additions to the museum, interview experts in their fields, and record their findings to share with future generations of Foxfire students and visitors. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you to keep in mind the theme to which I'm going to be referring throughout this mini-series, How Tradition Finds a New Generation. Today's episode, entitled Hooked on Fission, revolves around history, preservation, and skills associated with fission in Southern Appalachia. Without further ado, let's dive right on in. Long before the foothills of Appalachia were populated by Europeans, they were populated by the Cherokee people, a group of Native Americans who called the area home. They were very familiar with the ecology of the area, and they fished in these rivers, and they knew the fish well. As one may expect, their methods were very different from the methods of modern-day fishing. For example, they used stone weirs. These were terraces that they would put in the rivers. They basically would funnel the fish down into one area, where at the bottom, fishermen would be waiting with nets to catch the fish. Now, these weirs also changed the river's elevation to make it easier for fishermen to come into the river in order to harvest the fish. Now, in addition to this, these weirs also encouraged aeration of the water, which made it a lot easier for the insects, the fish's food, to come into this water. It encouraged the insects to be there. Now, this was very good for the ecosystem. However, there was another practice that was not so good for the ecosystem that they did tend to use, and that was poisoning the water with things such as pounded walnut bark, um, buckeye, and goat's rue. Now, these different compounds found in nature did produce different poisons, and the poison that was produced by the walnut and buckeye was called esculin, and the one produced by goat's rue was called retinone. So... The retinone was basically the chemical that we modernly have in most fish poisons, and what it did was it would stun the fish's nervous system, causing them to be unaware of their surroundings and to make it easier for them to float into the weirs and not try to avoid them and make it easier for the fishermen to harvest them. Unfortunately, a lot of the weirs were taken out during the Industrial Revolution because it made it difficult for boats to travel down the waterways. So, when the weirs were taken out, a lot of the Native Americans turned to the traditional methods of fishing that we kind of think of in terms of rod and reel. Instead of the line that we have today that we fish with made out of plastic, they would use strung horsehair. They would also create hooks out of bone, and they used feathers as early flies. Now, the flies were to represent the aquatic insects, which we also, we still do to this day. It is important to note that the Cherokees used trout not only as a food source, but almost as a source of currency, as they did use it to trade and barter with other people groups and among themselves. So actually, when the mountaineers moved in, 
they began to eat more of the trout than the natives may have because it was more of a food source for them than it was for the Native Americans. Now, over time, as the mountaineers, as I called them, and really the European Americans, as they began to move into America, they began to use different methods and introduce those to the Native Americans. So in the early 1800s, they were using things such as hardwood rods made out of ash, um, hickory, and hazelwood. However, by 1880, they were using the new British designs that they would begin to import. These British designs commonly included split cane rods and the newly invented fly reels. So the Americans began to improve upon this British technology, these British manufactured rods and reels. And over time, the young Cherokees and the young European Americans began to share so much methodology that some of the methodology that they used became indistinguishable as to which came from which group of people. Americans learned the lunar cycles and the weather and the seasons for fishing that the Cherokees traditionally had known, and the Cherokee people learned how to use the new technology, how to manipulate the new technology, and how to distinguish which artificial flies to use. So they really shared a lot of the methodology as time wore on, but in the end, the Cherokee people did primarily end up using the newer and more modern methods, especially the ones that were improved upon by the European Americans. Now, it is also important to note that the mountaineer methods were not always the same as other European American methods. So, for example, whereas other European Americans were using those hardwood rods and then they began to use those British imported rods, many of the mountaineers did not have access to those, whether it was because of distance separating them and they're living in the mountains or it was because of um, money issues. They tended to use other more easily accessible tools in order to fish. So, for example, one of those methods that they would use would be um, flexible sapling rods. So they would cut down saplings before they grew into full-on trees, and then they would use simple string that they either made or that they could purchase for a very cheap price, and they would use safety pins as hooks. So, of course, there are different methods throughout the different places in Appalachia, but that is just one common one to the North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee area. Now, while Cherokee people and European Americans did share a lot of methodology and they did learn a lot from each other, everything was not always quite so peaceful in the Southern Appalachians. Almost immediately after the Reconstruction era ended after the American Civil War, Northern industrialists moved into the war-torn South. So the Second Industrial Revolution was taking over at this time, and massive amounts of land speculation began in Appalachia. So land speculation means buying up large plots of real estate in hopes that its value will appreciate or compound over time. But this land speculation was not just for the purpose of making money off of the value of the land, it was also for logging. So since the Industrial Revolution was coming in, factories were coming in, logging was coming in, buildings were coming in, and it did tend to impact the Appalachian families very negatively. The water and soil quality both became very poor, and it made fishing very difficult because the water quality was so poor that many of the species of fish were actually dying out, and the populations began to decline. So the Appalachian people tended to complain about the over-harvesting of these forests because it was really decreasing their quality of living. So over time, legislature was passed. The Weeks Act of 1911 
allowed the federal government to purchase timberlands near waterways in order to protect the flow of the rivers and thus the fish within those rivers and the quality of the water. And then President Woodrow Wilson actually established the first national forest in Appalachia, the Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. Due to the formation of this national forest and eventually also the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, fishing for sport began to arise in the early 1930s. It was not yet common for Southern Appalachian families to fish primarily for sport. It was still very much a food source for them at this time, but it did start to arise as something that would occur. They, especially during the Great Depression um, with the formation of the Tennessee Valley Authority. So during this time, because of the rise of recreational fishing and because of the creation of these national parks and forests, stocked waterways became more common and thus the original native brook trout were accompanied by rainbow trout and brown trout. So these species did not originally live in the Appalachian waters, but they were introduced as part of the stocking, and now they're very common in the waters here. So of course, the species of fish in southern Appalachia have greatly varied over the years due to environmental changes. Everything from damming the rivers um, and creating lakes to stocking the waterways, over periods of time with greater and lesser qualities of water, different species of fish will inhabit those waters and then leave those waters. But the trout, the brook trout, seem to really stay here over time as they were a main source of food for the Cherokee people and they continue to be a main source of food for contemporary Appalachian fishermen. In fact, as Sam has experienced, there are a lot of brook trout in these waters. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. What types of fish do you normally fish for? Trout. Trout? Brook trout, mainly. That's really <laughs> it. Sometimes, you know, I used to fish for rainbow trout, and I have caught a bluegill before. That's really it. I think my best memory of fishing was when I caught something other than a trout. Because <laughs> that's all I'd ever really caught. And I finally caught that bluegill, and I was so happy because it wasn't a trout. While fishing has historically been an excellent method of collecting food, it is also a popular contemporary pastime. However, this well-treasured skill carries with it a forgotten discipline. The biological and entomological lessons to be learned from effective fishing practices are rich. A seasoned fly fisher will be able to tell you what types of aquatic insects are prevalent in his or her area, in which stage of maturity both fish and prey are currently living, and even which types of insects are prey for which species of fish. Everything from the Cherokee people's knowledge of environmental impacts on fish to modern Appalachians' expertise in tying flies well, let not ever yourself forget the expanse of wisdom and knowledge in the minds of fishermen. And now that we have a brief history of fishing here in Appalachia, including the conservation and the methods, I think now we can hear a little bit about the inspiration for this project, the motivation, and the goals that this group has for their final end goal. My name is Colton. I'm 17. I'd say some of my hobbies are running, playing guitar, learning more about history, and what my heritage skill, it actually incorporates well into those interests is cigar box guitars and making those. My name is Sam. I'm 16 and some of my hobbies are pole vaulting, uh, riding my motorcycle, fishing, obviously. I think physical fitness is really, really important because if your mind is sharp, but your body's not, you can't get to the places to use your mind. 
I'm Kirsten, 16 years old, and I run track and cross country, and I like to swim for my hobbies. A reason I chose my heritage skill, which is fibers, is because I wanted to learn more about fibers and how to create something new from organic material and use them in everyday life. What do y'all see as the final result or product of your project? So we're planning on making a documentary with all like the action shots of us fishing, the people we interview of them fishing, making flies, just our interviews and stuff. So that's really the main goal. And um, to also have that rod and reel and hopefully the traps that we can maybe display here. To make the rod, we'll probably be using a cane pole or bamboo, but I've been told that that's kind of rare these days. So it really just depends on what we can find. For the line, we'll try to either make a line or just we'll buy some line. So we'll be making the flies out of just store-bought hooks and chicken feathers, peacock feathers, deer hair, and um, nail polish, actually, to keep it all together. Obviously, the end goal is the documentary and the tangible rod. Though, as far as what we want to get out of it, what I really want to get out of it is what uh, Mr. Nixon talked about a lot today in our interview, and that's memories. For me specifically, I'll be going away to college for at least two to four years in just next year. So what my goal at Foxfire is this year is to really produce memories of my home. So your heritage skills are crafts and trades that you're going to get to learn from experts here on the property at Foxfire. So I have to ask, are you going to be incorporating any of your heritage skills into your seed projects? So mine is blacksmithing, and I've always been interested in building stuff, and we are going to be building a rod and reel, hopefully. So I'm kind of excited to do that, and hopefully traps too, so that'd be fun. And I'm going to try to make weights for the traps and maybe the line for that. And maybe the guide hooks, or the guide rings for the rod. So what inspired you to pursue this project? I am here because I'm curious. That I don't know enough about the subject at hand. And I'm here because I want to know more. And that's what I'm after in this project. My grandpa taught me how to fish. And I've always wondered how people used to fish here in the mountains like 75 uh, to 100 years ago. And I've always just kind of fascinated, fascinated with that. So. so what background knowledge do you have of this topic? I know how to fish. <laughs> I know about a lot of the fish here. I have a lot of connections to people who have been who's living here. I just know a lot of people who know a lot more than us. we got connections. There have been several people I've known throughout my life who have uh, inspired me to pursue fishing and an interest in fishing. So for my birthday recently, I got a lot of flies from a good friend of my father's at church. So Jody Hurley was definitely someone who inspired me to pursue an interest in fishing. What resources and people are you using to start your research? We haven't really used the internet much, but when we tried to go to the archive, a lot of the questions were like, what's your favorite time to catch fish? I don't know. Their answer was, I don't know. So we're doing a lot of interviews to try to find out uh, how people used to fish, how people fish now, what bait they used, and what bait they use now, stuff like that. Like, kind of a comparison sort of thing. I think that, yes, some of the information from the archives wasn't useful, but we have cited the archives in our research so far, and it has been a resource. So 
We are going to blend older interviews along with the information we're gathering now. So what impact do you guys hope to make through your project's completion? Learn how to do it better, learn new ways to do it, old ways to do it, and teach people about how how fishing is. I mean, I have a lot of friends back in Maryland where I used to live who, they're, they're city people. They don't really know how, how it is to live in the mountains, right? And most of them haven't really gone fishing. Or they don't really know how to fish, or if they have fished, it's throwing a line to the water and then partying, really. I mean, that's not fishing. That's waiting, really. I think it'd be good if we can teach people how people used to do it, how it used to work, how it used to operate, and also to uh, conserve the fish we have here, conserve the wildlife we have here. Because I know that commercial fishing isn't great. We catch a lot of dolphins in those trawling nets and a lot of turtles and stuff. And if we can learn how to move away from that more, catch our own stuff, it might be better for our health and for the ecosystem's health too. Frankly, what I hope to accomplish is to create and expand knowledge on fishing and also building memories of fishing. From your understanding, give me a brief history of your topic. People have been fishing for thousands of years, and it hasn't changed much. Um, they used to use spears, and from what I've seen, they'd use spears. They go like this and then hook around here, so they'd go stab the fish and bring it out. It was like hunting, but a little, little more tough because <laughs> you're up here, they're down here. You can't really go get them, so you got to find special and creative ways to go get those fish. But yeah, it's it's kind, it was kind of like hunting. And trapping because they would use traps. That's a, a lot of work because you got to find the fish where they are. Now you just take your rod and reel and your fly, just mm -hmm. cast it out and just wait. And that hasn't changed much. The only thing that's changed is the materials that they used to make the things, like the rod and the reel. Now a lot of rods are made of graphite or um, aluminum, I think, and a lot of the lines are plastic, but they and or nylon, but they used to. Uh, use cane poles and they used to make the lines themselves. So a lot of the materials have changed, but a lot of the techniques really haven't changed as much. Mm -hmm. The Native Americans, they would used to build dams to keep the fish in. And then they'd have like whole days where they just go and get these fish, have them dry and cook and stuff like that. But um, now it's like, you can just go out, find a fishing hole, cast your line in and wait. Sometimes reel it back, cast it in another spot and wait or get in the water <laughs> go half a mile up the up the stream and catch fish. But I guess it's it's evolved more from that catching with the spear to more of more leisure or more active. It's it can be one or one or the other, really. Is there something to be said about teaching as a form of learning? So you can learn a lot from seeing how other people do it. And even your people who you're teaching seeing how they do it seeing how they figure out how to do it can make you better at doing that thing like finding new techniques that you haven't seen before that they figured out and like oh that, that kind of makes sense i might try that so i, I feel like it, mm -hmm. teaching someone how to do something is a really good way of learning how to do it yourself you never really truly understand something unless you can explain it and teach it einstein said 
If you can't explain it to a six-year-old, then you don't know it yourself. So why is this skill so valuable to you guys? So I've been all over the country. My dad's in the Navy. And um, this is really where I came a lot to learn a, a bunch of stuff about living, I guess. I learned to fish here. I learned to farm here. I learned to drive here. I just learned to do a bunch of stuff here. Now I'm here for good. So I think it'd be good to make a lot of memories here. I think that fishing is a skill is valuable because it's one of the only activities that I know of that can directly connect you to nature and to your heritage. Whenever you're out in a mountain stream, uh, going fly fishing, for example, there's just something that is so natural about it. It feels like you're meant to be there. I think that if you can teach people how to how to rely on themselves, it's going to make them happier. They don't have to worry about someone else giving them things that are going to keep them alive. They If they need something, they'll be like, oh, I'm just going to make that. I can go catch that. I'll find that. I don't need to rely on someone else in another country making that for me so I can just give them a piece of paper and get it myself. If it's, if you can, in my opinion, if you can go out and find what you need and be happy and healthy with that, then kind of done your job. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share to summarize or conclude your topic? Fishing is fun and it's tough. It can be cold and wet and, I guess, miserable sometimes, and you want to quit. But some, you just have to look past that and think, hey, I'm doing something that I love, and it's a lot of fun. I have my friends doing it with me. And it's just, you're there, you're catching fish, you're having a good time, and that's all that matters. Right? It's called fishing, not catching. It, it takes a hot minute to catch a fish, especially if you don't know what you're doing. So I think if we can teach people the right way to fish through the interviews and through the videos that we get of other people fishing, get those to people and they learn how to fish from it, it'll make it a lot easier to go and fish. And there you have it, folks. Like any seal, fishing is something to be learned and perfected over time. Everything from learning from the Native Americans, to learning from our own grandfathers, to learning from our fathers, mothers, brothers, cousins, whomever you can learn from, even from each other, it's something to be shared. It's a communal activity and one that can be helpful both in providing food for oneself and one's family and unwinding and forgetting the troubles of modern life. This has been Maddie Perdue with the Foxfire podcast, It Still Lives, signing off. Thank you so much for listening, and join us back next time. Thank you! If you don't like that, you can throw it away.